0: I suggest that we can prove the existence of God from the impossibility of the contrary.
1: As Christians, we do not give up our intellect. The strongest evidence and argument for the existence of God is that without a belief in God, you can't prove anything. How can the material? That's the question I'm going to ask you. I would say no. And can you give me an example of anything other than God that's immaterial? Lost logic.
0: Welcome to the Revealed Apologetics podcast. I'm your host, Elias Ayala, and here at Revealed Apologetics, our goal is to equip believers to defend the Christian faith, and we want to equip you to do it in a way that is honoring to God and faithful to Scripture. So sit back, relax, get your thinking caps on, and let's dive into our topic for today. All right, welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Elias Ayala, and today, um, I say this all the time when I have a guest, I have a very special guest, and I, I like to call them special guests because I don't want them to feel as though I don't think they are special. So they are special. I don't get some generic phone heads on here. We got some good quality yeah. uh, pictures go. here, and so I want to let people know that, uh, that it is great to have our guests when we have them, and today, it is a pleasure for me to introduce folks to Dr. Jonathan Pritchett, from uh, Trinity Radio. And what's the seminary that you work at?
1: Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. Trinity College
0: of the Bible and Theological Seminary. Yeah, it's a mouthful. It is a mouthful. It kind of comes awkward off off the tongue. Now, um, some who might be listening to this uh, episode might be familiar with you um, already. And uh, people would probably wonder, what is a good old Calvinist like Eli Ayala having a grimy Jonathan Pritchett Anti Calvinist hater, Whoa. You know? that's not just messing around. Um, here's the thing I, I am completely convinced, and I'm sure that you would agree that it is quite possible for Calvinists and non Calvinists to get along and actually benefit from one another. <laughs> Go figure.
1: Well, that was my life experience until I discovered social media, to be honest uh, with you. Yes, uh, yeah, I was a member of a Baptist church that was London Baptist Confession 1689. Uh, the pastor was a was the son of uh, my pastor for a while, and then he became a pastor and got his own church down the road, went with him, and uh, was a member there for about seven years. And it was never... He knew that I'd moved away from Calvinism. He didn't. He asked me to preach. I was the outreach sure. coordinator of his Remount Baptist Church in North Little Rock. You know, I mean, we grew up in the same church with his dad as our pastor, but it was... This was never a thing about, like, uh, the contentiousness until I discovered the Internet. And then I started reading older literature, and it's pretty contentious in the literature as well. But, you know, it's just, it was never a part of my experience in the local church Mm -hmm. where, of course, it was a Southern Baptist church. And, you know, Southern Baptists, you get all kinds of different views in the same church. So, But, yeah, it's it's never been a thing until I discovered the Internet. But I, I do not consider myself to be anti-Calvinism. Right. I will say that there are Calvinists that I am right. anti-Calvinist, but I can say that about these— are, and, you know, certain Arminians out there, sure. or, or sure. these trad, prov- whatever, originalists that they're Southern Baptist folks, Leighton Flowers crowds calling themselves these days. Some of those people are just outright the worst people on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> so, and he knows, I, I, I say that. It, well, his forum's gotten cleaned up. I got to give uh, some props sure. to them for trying to clean up that. But y- you would think that you hear all this stuff about cage-stage Calvinism, but if you go to certain forums on the Internet where it's just, well, if you're a Calvinist, you're a heretic confined to the flames for all eternity. I'm like, wait a minute. No, there, there's only, like, the most extreme Calvinists out there say that about everybody. But right. why are you saying this? You're as bad as some of those guys and it's yeah just... and
0: i and i've heard you say in in certain contexts, and i think this is important is that uh in regards to apologetic methodology you're not anti-presuppositionalism but you are anti-presuppositionalist in regards to specific boneheads who are jerks <laughs> when presenting the methodology right yes and, and, <laughs> right. And,
1: and but i will say there are a lot of good ones like sure. i mean i love john frame who, who, how can sure. you not like John Frame? I mean, you have to hate Santa Claus to not like John Frame. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's just one of the greatest people on the planet. You know, right, right, right. and he has a heart for evangelism, which I, I appreciate. And, you know, um, Scott Oliphant's a great guy. And uh, you and J.D. Martin out there, a lot of the younger presuppositionalists are out there doing it in a very cordial way. Um, but there are a few and I don't need to name names. People could probably sure. imagine who I think they are. Uh, that I, I think do a disservice to presuppositionalism. Because while methodologically you and I might disagree that presuppositionalism is necessarily connected to Reformed theology, sure. uh, I think that I don't think that that's necessarily the case, but we can differ on that. But still, as a method in action, when you're talking to people, and you use transcendental arguments, and you're exposing the borrowed capital for the affirmations that they want to make, that it's dependent actually upon our worldview. And various things like that are very useful. So I know that a lot of non-Calvinists, especially the apologist crowd, they get heartburned and just, you know, seethe about presuppositional. And I was like, don't cut yourself. Well, first off, I tell people, if you've not even read a book by a presuppositionalist, don't say a word about it you right. know, I mean, if you've I not agree. even read it you know uh, but yeah i i i enjoy uh seeing it in action a really good debate um i think he's really i think jeff durbin's really good at it mm-hmm. um and there was a debate that he teamed up with uh james white against uh a couple of scientist guys <laughs> yes See, I thought that my debate with Leighton against the, uh, Sonny Hernandez and Theodore Zachariadis, or I thought that was the, <laughs> Zachariadis. Yeah. I thought yeah. that was the biggest. Wow. Debate like <laughs> that really happened, but I think that their debate trumped ours. Well, it. the
0: battery acid, you don't usually, you don't usually have people bring battery acid on a platform in All an right. academic setting. That's, uh,
1: yeah, they they, they they took the crown, so now we don't have the most entertaining. <laughs> <of> the, <laughs> it's still
0: it's still up there though. It was yeah, pretty, it's still it's up, pretty, yeah, it's
1: pretty wild, but yeah,
0: yeah. I, I love the uh, with Theodore's uh, wow with the echoed wow. Uh, All right, and it's one of my favorite parts of uh, of the opening of the Trinity Radio podcast. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's gonna live forever as that. Yes, but yeah, that, that's an interesting debate because I was actually Leighton Flowers' second choice okay. for a partner in it. Who was the first? And, and so I got roped in this. I've done one debate against Calvinism and now okay. everyone thinks, ah, oh, he, and, and I'm like, well, no, I, I like Calvin's writings and I like sure. reading it. I mean, you can see behind me, I've got tons of reformed theology uh, on my shelf. I, I don't, I, anything under the umbrella of orthodoxy is cool with me. Sure. There's so many, there's, there's real heresy to deal with. And yeah. then there's a secular culture and an unbelieving culture to deal with. And that's, right. That's what our focus is mainly that's right. on.
0: That's right, and and, I, and that's what I appreciate about you. And I think I think sometimes uh, uh, when when you're sitting next to someone like Braxton, you guys have a very interesting and dynamic um, chemistry with one another, where he he kind of is the the soft, cuddly sort of guy, and and you can come off sometimes a little more rough around the edges. But a lot of people don't realize that. Uh, and I, I can say this because I've listened to you guys for a long time uh, you are quite a reasonable and nice guy. It's just that you um you do not tolerate uh, man babies and I
1: appreciate that <laughs> yeah, yeah th- that's the thing but but I but here's the downside of that um, sometimes if you go too far you can become the thing that you don't like that's right and yeah. so it that's kind of just one of those things that I pray about that I don't ever cross those lines because I I really am a, I try to try to be friends with everybody, but sure. I, I don't stomach nonsense. And sometimes I hear just nonsense, especially from some of these atheists who are attacking the faith. Uh, but sometimes I, I hear it from theological opponents with whom I disagree, and sometimes I hear it from theological allies with whom I do agree. And I'm just like, sure. you can't. S- that's that's terrible. Why are right. you doing this? You know, and so so it's, is everybody. It's one of the things that I learned from Braxton. Actually, he said, "Okay, this is not really my manner, but always rise arise to the vitriol of your opponent, but never go past it." You know, because sometimes <laughs> it's called for. You got to smack somebody around. So, uh, but yeah, there's a lot of things that get ended up on the cutting room floor of a Trinity Radio episode that maybe we should release to patrons as <laughs> you know, just little primisms or whatever. But. That's but yeah, I, I, but I don't, I don't have it out for anybody, but except for very, I have a very short list and, you know, you can go join our Facebook form to see who I have it out for. <laughs> but other than that, it's, and it has, and a lot of it has to do with their public behavior. Very little of it has to do with the all right. Right, right.
0: Now, now, last point. So we don't spend so much time just being nice to one another, uh, in terms of like, yay, let's hold hands and, and, uh, you know, be on the same team. Um, I think, um, especially my Calvinist audience who are very, very, very hardcore, reformed theology is the way to go. And I'm, and I'm that way, too. I believe I'm, I'm reformed. Oh, however, however, you're kidding. Get out yeah, of that. yeah, Surprise, surprise. However, building bridges between differing perspectives perspectives is not the same thing as compromising on your convictions. I could hold strong to my positions and still build bridges of communication and benefit from learning from people who don't agree with me. Uh, we don't want to become an echo chamber, just talking about you know uh, talking to people that agree with us. It's good to see something from a different perspective and and have this kind of iron sharpens iron relationship. So,
1: well, uh, yeah, and that that goes beyond just. I mean, I think that should, in principle, extend to worship as well because I have worshipped in 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 uh, now. I, that doesn't work for every church, but sure. But but if you're at a if you're at a ministry event, for example. Or a church that's really more ecumenical as far as, like, within orthodoxy or whatever. It's mm-hmm. fine. But, like, at a ministry, like, I, I'm going to, together for the gospel conference, mm-hmm. and I'm going to sing the songs and listen to the 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 uh, presentations right along with my Reformed brothers and sisters, and it's no big deal, you yeah. know? Yeah, no and hopefully I'll, I'll benefit and maybe, if some, you know, if some say, hey, there's that one guy and they want to come talk to me about it. Well, I, you know, we could have a conversation if they want to be civil, which most people in person really are. Right. 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 You know. Yeah. So,
0: well, great, great points. Well, well, let's move on to our main our main topic. Um, and uh, we really wanted to talk about this issue of physical and spiritual health. And And yes. um, for those who, who listen to my podcast and, and uh, my YouTube channel say, well, we want to hear some apologetic stuff. Well we can make some apologetic application as well because I think this issue of physical and spiritual health has kind of, um, uh, tentacles that reaches into those other other categories. There's, there is something to being physically healthy and spiritually healthy and how that plays out in uh, the manner in which we live our lives, defend the faith and whatever. So I think these are kind of, um, holistically related. So hopefully we'll, we'll get to there. So let's start actually with physical health. Now, um, I have, again, as I said before, I've, I've listened to your stuff uh, for a while now, and I, I'm kind of joking around here, I don't mean to insult you, but back in the day, you used to be fat. I remember yeah. there was a video, you had this big, you look almost like, okay, you know, yeah. he's a little heavy set guy, and then all of a sudden I see, you know, as as your the videos are coming out, he's slimming down. I'm checking to see if my, my computer settings are, are <laughs> correct, you know, is he using yeah. a filter or something like that? And as you are getting skinnier, Braxton was filling in. I don't know if you guys are doing kind of this.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, yes. It's happy. <laughs> I'm, I'm like totally. The, I was fat, but he's merely filling in. I get it. That's
0: right. That's right. So uh, on a serious note, though, why don't you tell people a little bit about your weight loss journey and include in there some of the, um, the issues of dis- really disciplining yourself to reach that goal? What were some of the things that you did to reach that goal? Um, and maybe you can lay that out for us.
1: Okay. Well, it, for the, up until last year, this, it all started uh, probably, um, I had just, you pack on weight and you don't really notice it. See, I've sat in, I sit in this room 10, sometimes 12 hours a day, mm-hmm. uh, on, on bad days, sometimes less, but, uh, you know, when you're in a room like this, um, and at a job that's pretty stationary, and you do a lot of reading. It's easy to grab potato chips and stuff your face with it, right? <laughs> uh, it's, it's it's obvious looking at me right now that I I I, I can't tell people that oh yeah I'm big boned or, or whatever. You know I just steadily increased weight over the years, and it got to the point where, um, you know I'm only five eight, but I weigh two hundred and twenty pounds, mm-hmm. and so and I'm not I have a small frame, so it's not I you know it it wasn't a matter of um. Anything other than gluttony and sloth, mm-hmm. to be honest, being lazy doesn't mean you don't get up and go to work and do a good job at your profession and all of that stuff. There's other ways to be lazy in, in life, you know, but if you sit, a, if you, if you have a job where you're not very active or you, even if you do, but you go home and you overeat and you just lay around on the couch, play video games all day or, or play games with your kids or whatever, and you don't even set an example for them or whatever your life is like. Over the years you just pack on a ton of weight, and there's and and I want I want to be absolutely clear about this up front. I do not think that it is sinful to be fat or even obese like I was. I don't think it's sinful to be obese. Mm-hmm. However, I think it is there are several factors of your lifestyle that led to you becoming obese that are sinful. Mm-hmm. And it usually comes down to laziness and gluttony. And it's amazing that I started having health problems and I was actually going to the emergency room and seeing a doctor and had heart issues and everything else because I and, and it was all preventable, you know. Uh, but I, my my health started failing and it wasn't until actually Braxton Hunter's father who called me out on it. He Ooh. said, Jonathan, you have been here for a few years and you've gotten fat. It's like <laughs> the way like you said you've gotten fat. You need to do something <laughs> about this. And, you know, he wasn't trying to be rude. Sure, sure. I mean, you know, but he is direct, you know, and and he did call me out on it. But what was interesting to me about that, other than the fact that I knew he was right. And I've got a great wife who, yes, she loved me the way that I was. But I mean, she prefers this. Trust me. Uh, but <laughs> but she she loved me the way that I was. And, oh, I thought you were handsome when you were heavier, blah, 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 blah. So she's too nice to call me out on it. But he, right. so even my own wife wouldn't call me out of it. But, he called me out on it. And he's the only Christian I know that ever did. Mm. And that got me to thinking. And that was really the most, I, I think I needed to be called out for it is what actually motivated me to sure. start thinking about doing something about my health. And so back in April, I weighed about 220 pounds April of last year. Okay. And and so I decided I, it, I, I'm having some health problems, Um uh, my best friend's father's calling me fatty now. <laughs> you know, it's, like, okay, I'm being so. bullied
0: in the office. What's going on? <laughs> right. <laughs>
1: um, so it, that's what began it for me. And I decided that, well, ch- it, to, to do it, it's hard work uh, to readjust your life. Doing the things that it takes to do to lose weight is not hard, but changing your life to do it is what's hard. Right. So it's not hard for me to grab a carrot stick instead of a potato chip and stick it in my mouth. It's the same range of motion. It's not hard for me to get in my car and go to the gym. I get in my car and go to lots of places like McDonald's or whatever. (laughs) You know, I mean, doing uh... these kinds of things is not hard, but the getting yourself to make a lifestyle change, that's the hard thing. Mm -hmm. But everything else is not as now in the gym when you're lifting heavy weights and you're out of shape. Yeah, it's it's difficult, but in a different sense, you can still do it. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to kill yourself to do it. It's not like you're trying to train for a competition or anything. But that for me was the hardest thing to do was to realize that I need to change my life. And so that takes, you know, for Christians, that takes prayer, that takes self-discipline, that takes grace. What All of these things need to, to, you got to change your thinking about something almost, you know, uh, do a 180 from where you're going no let uh, me
0: let me stop you right there is is how did this so now everything you just said is kind of like it's kind of like when someone says how do i become a stronger christian well pray and read the bible that's going to help you know um but then not a lot of people know exactly the mechanics of how that works so well how do i read the bible is there a special way i should read it how do i pray how do i develop these patterns and and schedule and all what did that look like for you when you said, I, needed, I need to change my life, and you began to think about things that led to the actual changing? Why don't you unpack the process itself for us?
1: So the process for me was I needed to look at my schedule. It starts with my schedule, and then it went from schedule to eating habits. So I, I thought about my schedule that I'm waking up with just enough time to shower and go to work, mm. okay? And then after work, you've had a full day of work, you're tired, but you, you do whatever you do with your family. Like our family will have dinner together and we'll do a devotional and then it's kind of free range or whatever. And I found myself, we don't have a TV in our living room, but we do have it in our bedroom. So I found myself, you know, I was watching binge watching, you know, for that's what I did. I just watched TV, um, every night. And I realized that Yeah, that's got to change because if you're just sitting around being sedentary all day at work and then you're going home and being sedentary and you're, you know, not doing anything, well, of course you're going to pack on weight. Then you look at your eating habits and you're like, that's where the gluttony comes in. I looked at my eating habits and I would eat all day long, constantly at my desk, you know, and then I would eat big meals and big portions and then I would eat stuff that I knew is not good for me. You know, it's like, oh, I just ate a candy bar after I ate, you know, 2,500 calories for dinner worth of six, seven slices of pizza that's fully loaded. Oh, no wonder I look like, you know? So it was like changing all of those habits, but it started with my schedule. And I realized, I think this is true whether you go to the gym in the mornings or not. You get up at five and go to bed between nine and 10 o'clock. You get a lot more done in a day than if you get up at seven, get to work at eight and then stay up until midnight. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why that is, but at least unless you're a second or third shift kind of person. But it, for first shifters, I, I don't know how these people get anything done because I didn't accomplish much. Mm-hmm. But I accomplished much more in a day getting up earlier and going to bed earlier than and I feel more rested. But that was for me the start of it was looking at my schedule and how much time I'm wasting doing nothing. And mm-hmm. then moving to checking out my diet and, and, and seeing that. And then from that, it moved to the math. See, losing weight is all about math. It's all about 3,500 calories equals roughly a pound of weight, right? Okay. And there's these calculators that are, they're not overly specific, but they're general that whatever your sex, male, age, for me, 42, weight, 220, lifestyle, you input that information and then it spits you out, this is how many calories you burn in a day. Well, if you know you want to lose weight and you set a target goal. For me, I wanted to get down to 155. I ended up getting down to 150, and that's where I'm maintaining. But my goal at the time was 155. So I figured in, okay, I need to eat. So after I did the math and said, okay, I'm going to work out for an hour. I'm going to do six to eight miles of walking a day. You know, how many calories will I burn on that routine Uh, in in a week? And so I did that, and every week when I'd lose weight, I would reconfigure that because – the less you weigh, the less calories you were burning, doing the same amount of activity. It just works that way. Okay. And so I kept inputting that data and I was able to map out that by the first week of October, um, starting in April, that I was going to hit my target weight. I beat it by a week, but it was almost to the, you know, but a week is, you know, being earlier rather than later is, is better. But I, it was just basically following the math. Do this much exercise in a day, taking only this much calories and, and do that. That's why I, I, I tell people you can try whatever diet you want and they probably all work for me. The most simple thing was, you know, calories in, exertion out. Mm. And just I stuck to that. And I have pictures of me from April all the way to the present day where you can just see. And in the first few months, it doesn't look much different. But yeah. it's like, but. You know, Braxton pointed out, and I think it's probably true, he said, one day you showed up and you look like you do now. You know, it's like, almost but it wasn't overnight. It just right. seemed that way to everybody. And six months is not a lot of time. When I, when people tell me that, oh, you're inspiring me to go lose weight or whatever, you know, uh, that's great. But I tell people, look, six to eight months from now, however long it may take you to get your goal weight, sometimes it may take people a year or longer. I don't, depend on where you start, how much you can do in the time period to burn the amount of calories you need to burn. Sure. But I tell people, let's say in a year, a year from now, you're going to, you know, Lord willing, you continue to live a year from now. You're going to be a year older. That's an amazing fact that you're going to have to come to grips with. But a year from now, you can either be weighing what you weigh, weigh more or weigh less. What do you want to do? Because a year is going to go by. And if you continue to live, it's going to happen one way or the other. You're going to be a year older in a year. What do you want to do? You want to weigh the same? You want to weigh more? You want to weigh less? It's that simple. Mm. You just got to figure it out.
0: Now, now what? Now, when people want to lose weight, they they tend to. For me, I, I'm an extremist. Like I'm not I'm yeah. not a heavy set guy, but I do got a gut, and I and I um, I feel I feel like I'm at a counselor. Listen, I have this a gut, and I'm, I'm tired all the time. But you know what? Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna lay it all out here. Um, I do have a little bit of a gut. I do feel um, fatigued a lot. So I wake up early in the morning and I gotta do what I gotta do. And when I come home from work, I'm just I need a nap. Um, yeah. and then when I think about okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. You know, I do the, like those intense, you know, beach body things like the insanity and this. And yeah. it, I tend to go off onto the extreme and I'll do it good for a week and it's amazing. And I'm actually you could, I actually feel the difference. And then I I kind of fall back and then I feel like a complete failure because I started at this extreme level and then fell off. Um, is, that, is that the case? When people want to lose weight, um, do you have to do these drastic, intense things? I mean, what were some of the exercises you started with? Um, obviously, you changed your eating. What no. were some of the exercises you started doing and, and kind of continued throughout the time that led you to your, your weight loss?
1: Okay, so I started my diet and exercise uh, in April didn't join a gym until June. Okay. okay. Cause I, I started, I, I, I get that. I'm the same. Th- that might just be a personality type. I've okay. tried that before to go gusto and then crash, you know? And I think that there's some people who can go gusto and get it done too. Sure, uh, sure. But I think more people are probably like us than not. Right. Uh, because they, they get into it and they're just like, uh, uh-huh. but you feel good, but then you, you know, you, you didn't make a lifestyle change. You, you, you got excited. That's about Mm -hmm. it. You Mm -hmm. know, it's not a lifestyle change, but what I did was as I knew that I was going to eventually go to the gym and change my life, but I I decided to start by just walking. Okay. So for the month of April, I was just going to walk. And then in May, I got out the old dumbbells that are chipped away and have, you know, spider webs on them and everything else from the <laughs> garage and decided to incorporate some dumbbell exercises. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did till May until the second week of June. And that's when I decided that I'm going to, instead of just doing this at home, I'm going to go to the gym every day. Okay. But, but my goal was six to eight miles a day. Um, when I of first walking. started of walking.
0: So when you started like, you, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to walk, I'm changing my life. You tried to walk six, uh, how old was it again?
1: It was between six and eight miles a day. Now you, okay. that seems like a lot, but it's, not, I didn't do just set out and start walking for six miles. Yeah, what, you didn't I, do like a Forrest Gump and you just ran. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I just, it, it came out to, I don't know, 16,000, 17,000 steps or whatever. Okay. Um, so my iPhone had a little heart app, you know, and I think, uh, smartphones have these in general right and it, it's basically a pedometer and so i would go until it said either six or you know seven sometimes a little bit over and it would start by walking a little bit in the morning walk uh, at my lunch break and take a walk with the wife and kids at night you know and then you just keep going even if they quit until you see that six or even past that do you walk and,
0: fast do you walk? know no you're just doing a casual walk
1: just casual walk with the family, except, well, I probably walk a little bit faster when I was by myself or my lunch break in the parking garage or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I just tried to make sure that I did not go to bed until I had that six miles at least on my little, uh, what is it? A little phone app. Okay. You know, I don't, I don't even have a Fitbit, you know, it's just a little app on my phone that tracks your steps and mileage. And so I started with that. And then I started while I was watching television, hadn't changed that yet. Um, in May, I got out my dumbbell exercises and would do that for about 45 minutes or 42, however long a television show is without commercials on Netflix, you okay. know, I was just like, well, you're going to do hand weights with it. You know, the dumbbell weights with it. You could do, you could do all kinds of different dumbbell exercises that, and that kind of helped a little bit. Uh, and that's when I really started getting better at the diet and counting the calories and all of that. And I became We have a little game at the office that they can now shout out something like an Arby's French au jus dip sandwich. And I'll be like 740 calories because I know exactly how much (laughs) things are. (laughs) Because you you get in the habit of looking at at the foods and a lot of restaurants will have the calorie thing. And so uh, I started counting the calories and I limited myself to 1500 a day. And then one cheat day a week where I do like twenty uh, five hundred or something, you know, okay. taking a little bit more. But I gave myself a cheat day. Sorry. Hang on. That's uh, all right. <laughs>
0: yeah, I got the same thing in my office. I got to clap it to get light back on.
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> no, I have a hutch here and the, the motion sensors behind it. So, okay. <laughs> you know, I record a lot of lectures in my desk and every lecture has the lights go out on that yeah, yeah, yeah. Start waving my hands around. <laughs> I don't does. know why that is, but uh But yeah, so the counting calories and dieting. I looked at all the different ways to diet, all the different exercise routines, but I I I found that the basic calorie and exercise diet and exercise count your calories, and I still count my calories. Mm -hmm. I'm eating between 2,800 and 3,000 calories a day now, but I'm I still count them and I still make sure that they're healthy, you know, healthy. How
0: how many calories should a person have a day? I know it differs, but is there a general Um, amount of calories we should be having a day and trying not to go over?
1: Uh, I'm sure that medical experts will have a different answer than me. But me, no, because some people are trying to lose weight, which means you need to take in fewer calories and you burn and you need to figure out You know, and I know that they're rough guesstimates on these calculators that you find online, but how many calories on average do you burn on a treadmill or burn on, you know, lifting weights at a light effort or a vigorous effort? How much? So you plug in all those numbers and then it'll tell you how many calories you're going to burn if you do that. You say, well, so I got it to where, I mean, when I was 220, I was burning 36, 3700 calories with the amount of exercise and walking and all that that I was doing. Mm -hmm. And so I could just take in 1,500 calories and lose a pound every two days, you know? Mm. Um, So it all depends. But if you're like me right now, I weigh 150 pounds and I burn, because of my daily activity levels higher, I burn 3,000 calories. Mm. So I try to make sure I get between 28 and because I don't want to lose any more weight or I'll start looking like a cancer patient. So, (laughs) you know, so I'm happy where I'm at. So I want to maintain. So I have to do the things that is required to maintain.
0: Now, um, were you ever in a place where, I mean, me, I, I'm thinking in terms of myself, and I'm sure other people can relate to this, in terms of fatigue, I, I drink so much coffee. I, I, to be honest, I'm not exaggerating. I think I drink more coffee than I drink water.
1: Oh, man, no. It's terrible. Uh, so, yeah.
0: so what role does, does water play in this entire process, staying hydrated and things like that?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm forced myself to drink six bottles of water a day minimum. Okay. Minimum. And people tell me, well, that, they always point to something. Brad says, it's the walking, not the weightlifting. The, the weightlifting made you get a little bit toned, but the walking is what caused you to lose weight. Dr. Elliot says, no, it's drinking all that water, flushes you out. That's why you lost weight. And I'm like, no, I just did all of that, and that's why right. I lost the weight. You know, so they <laughs> always right. find the one thing, the one thing that they don't want to do. Like, I don't want to drink all that water, so but that's what did it for you, but I'm not going to do it. Right, or, right. You know, I don't want to do all that walking. But no, it's uh, I make sure I, I drank six, and I everyone knows that this uh, diet citrus drop is my beverage of choice. I talk about it, and I don't get paid <laughs> to talk about it. But I drink, I drink probably, a, I probably a two liter a day, a diet soda. So I'm not one to pick on you for your coffee. All right? Uh, coffee is just dirt water anyway. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't drink coffee. I can. It's like you <laughs> insulted a family member. Coffee is very important. You know, I know. Trust me, everyone in this office is. Braxton drinks cold coffee in ice. Okay. okay. Yeah. So He's it, fancy it's fancy that way. All right. No, it's nasty that way. But, <laughs> but yeah, no. So I'm not one to talk about. Pe- I don't, I'm not, whatever you eat, that's fine. Or, okay. Or whatever you drink, if you like coffee, fine. I, I like my caffeine too. I just, not coffee. But I do recommend whatever it is, drink a lot of water. Okay. You know, um, you go to the bathroom more. But you probably go, to, <laughs> if you drink as much coffee as you say. You go yeah, like, uh, yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> That's right. But yeah, but, um, yeah I, I, I think uh, everyone said drink a lot of water, so I drink a lot of water. I'm not an expert, you know? Sure, sure, sure. But, so I, but I just do, when I looked at everything, I could think of counting calories and exercise and drinking a lot of water, all of that kind of helped me. Now, people... People whine to me and say, Oh, I don't want to do what you did because counting calories is, is that's a hassle. Like taking this and scooping your food onto a plate, Oh, that one more did. How hard is that? <laughs> Read the back of the thing and then s- use measuring cup. <laughs> See, that's the thing. People think it's just hard. It's not hard. It's not some incredible feat that I did. You know, right, right, right. nothing I. Did. It's a lifestyle. Yeah, it's change. a lifestyle. Just, change. And, right. and and making the commitment to do that, yeah, not not to lose weight, but to change your life. Mm. That's, you know, and that's mm. where. But I tell you, you know, physical health has led to increased spiritual health. It really yes. has. Yeah. Um, so I. Well, what, well I want to
0: get I want to get there. Yeah. I have, I have one more question on the physical side.
1: OK. Um,
0: and. Well well, two more. Uh, so so the majority of the exercises that you did would that would you say that consisted of just walking a lot, just being active, not necessarily these intense push ups and weightlifting. I mean, you tried to mix a little bit in there, but was the majority of it just getting
1: out and moving and when changing I start, your diet? When I started. Okay. Like I said, I started with the walking, then walking in dumbbells, and then I joined the gym. Okay. And when I joined the gym, I go to the gym five days a week. And I do a different muscle group, uh, Monday's leg day and I don't skip leg day, but it looks like I skip leg day cause I have chicken legs. Um, <laughs> you know, Tuesday chest, Wednesday back, Thursday shoulders, Friday's arms. Mm. And so I would do a different, and I put in our Facebook group, I put my workout routine in there. It's, you know, it's, it's six exercises per muscle group. And then I would do, um, ab workout after that. And I do that every day. And then. I did that, and that usually takes about 45 minutes a day. Um, but then, as I got healthier, probably, probably somewhere around September, when I was almost to my goal, I actually, after I did my daily exercise, 45 minutes of muscle group plus abs, I started doing some total body stuff just because I felt better, sure. you know. And, and so now my I added about another thirty minutes to my morning routine. Mm. Uh, as I, but my body was able to do more, right. you know. So, yeah. so now I, I work out for about an hour and fifteen minutes at the gym every morning, right. and because I'll do the same muscle group a day, and then I'll do a total some total body stuff. It, I go to Planet Fitness, and I know people call it Planet Fatness and all that, but hey, if you're <laughs> fat, don't knock it, you know. Um, and they have the other little neat things like, uh, medicine balls. And they have, <clears throat> they call it PF 360. It was basically a jungle gym stuff, you know? Sure, sure. And so I, was, I, you know, when I was able to start doing chest dips and chin ups and pull ups, I was like, well, that's pretty neat. I'm not, you know, uh, getting off the couch used to make me tired now. You right. know, I my body. So, um, yeah. Do you, so do
0: you find yourself, run, do you run at all?
1: You no, I, I like my knees. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's good. That's why walking is probably a, a good 42. Bet for You're a young guy, aren't you? I'm 37,
0: but I had a long life of, of nonstop basketball. So I developed oh, tendinitis yeah. in my knees. So yeah, I gotta be careful.
1: Yeah. You don't have to run. That's the good news. You don't have to run to lose weight. It just All takes, right. it just takes more time walking to get the same amount of, you know, right. that you get uh, from. But, man, you know what it's like getting older. Once I hit my mid-30s, everything started hurting for no reason. Right, so. right, right.
0: But, yeah. okay, so now here's my last question in regards to just the the physical aspect. And it's not more I, – I guess this is more of just a part of a scheduling. Um, as you know, people who want to lose weight um, are very, very good at making up excuses why they can't do what they know they should do in order to get there. Um, all of yeah. a sudden – you know, I become allergic to rain. It's raining outside. I can't go outside. <laughs> yeah. What's going on? You know, yeah. Um. I have a family. I know people who want to lose weight have a family. They have kids. Yes. How many kids do you have? How old are they? And how has the challenge of family made it difficult and more challenging to maintain a consistent schedule in all of the things you need to do? Waking up early, going out for your runs, going to the gym. How does that all work in light of the fact that you're a family member?
1: yeah so i i have three children but only two still at the house and uh, 17 okay. and 14. Okay. um now i i could imagine it'd be more difficult for single parents but for a, you know two-parent home um it was going to bed earlier and getting up earlier to work that gym time in mm. um you know so i you know, my wife is still at home for when they get up. If they, they're not going to get up before I get back from the gym though. Let's They're teenagers now. Uh, but younger kids, they get up a little bit earlier. But so for me, I mean, you know, I've got a pretty demanding job. People don't know this, but we're probably the third largest seminary in the world, you know? Um, so I've got a demanding job. I've got Family is very important to me. You know, we're still a sit down at the dinner table and eat together family. We don't eat out much. Um, we still do family devotionals, you know, as uh, you know, and I'm not saying we sit there and we're in the word for an hour every night after. No, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. 15, 20 minutes. And is that, you know, um, and then you've got church and you've got activities and everything else. But for me, the basic thing was you don't need to stay up till midnight watching the next roll around thing on television. Or if you're even like me, you don't need to stand, stay up where your wife's snoring next to you. If your wife, I didn't say my wife snores, I meant sleeping <laughs> and you've got your little phone light and you're still reading a book or you're reading a book on your phone. Cause I'll, you know, or whatever you don't need to get that next page in. You, you don't have, I mean, students maybe, but, but go to bed and get up early because most people are not up at that hour, you sure. know? And so for, for me, I can get up and it, our kids are old enough where they could stay at home by themselves, you know, sure. I mean, 14 and 17, but you know, my wife's there, but so, so sometimes she'll come with me. Um, but she likes to go later in the day, but, mm-hmm. um, so sometimes she'll go with me, but most days not, um, there by myself, which I don't like. I actually wish that I had like a workout partner. Okay. Uh, I hear that makes it easier, but I don't have that luxury because my buddy who probably needs to avail himself of the gym membership that he has, <laughs> um, won't get up and come with me to the gym. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, for me, uh, get up early. Okay. Or, now that's going to look different for second and third shift people. Sure. Um, and, and I, have been there, trust me. I used to, I've worked second shift at jobs. I've worked third shift at jobs and, um, I still say you do everything you do. You need to do probably better to do it before work, because now I look at work until my lunch break where I do some exercises just because I'm so scared of sitting at this desk and, and eating. I have a mini fridge here. And even though it's now got celery and cucumbers instead of chocolate, still, you know, you just think. So I always try to stay a little bit active during the day, too. Right. Um, but, you know, for those who have active jobs, you know, getting your pedometer up to to, to 15, 20,000 steps by taking a walk after work's going to, going to be no problem for them as well. But I always tell people, I I know that everyone's, you're going to Google and get a ton of different advice. But for me, what worked best was getting that done before work and before the mm. kids got it. Yeah. Do you, um, what,
0: what time do you go to sleep?
1: Uh, between nine and 10 and I'm up at five.
0: Well, that, that's a, that's a fair time. And when, and when you, um, when you're walking and exercising, what, what are you listening to?
1: um, depends. Sometimes I'll listen to, uh, I'll I'll give the scholarly answer for, sometimes (laughs) I listen to my Logos or Kindle books with the voiceover app at high speed. Uh, Little trick that we learned from James White, who you interviewed earlier, you know? Okay. I heard him talking about that when he does that on his bike rides. And I was like, yeah. You mean the voiceover,
0: like when you, um, the accessibility. Yeah. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. And you
1: haven't read, so I've got the Logos app and a Kindle app on my phone. Um, so that's that's what I'm supposed to say, uh, but I've got different playlists. So sometimes I like to listen to music. So sometimes it's going to be um, things like '80s retro music or '80s yes. pop. Sometimes it's going to be. I got the
0: Rocky soundtrack going. I'm a big yeah, Rocky guy. <laughs> right. Uh,
1: yeah, Survivor. Yeah, well, that's that gets you hype for the gym, though. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and you're nothing like S- Stallone's montages, but you know you're right make you feel a little good uh but i, I like some of that music I, I i like to listen to hip-hop music i like to listen to uh, i like to listen to big band uh one of my i liked all the the rat pack stuff but i i was a big fan of harry Connick jr so okay. Okay. Uh, i listened to some of the big band and swing music so i listen to all kinds of music i don't have a preference i I have to say that, no, I don't listen to contemporary Christian music on my... All right. I don't have <laughs> you don't, that you don't, listen, you don't
0: listen to oceans when you're bench pressing. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> no, but I do, people do make fun of me because I do have, in my retro playlist, I do have Cyndi Lauper's Time After Time. And <laughs> they, they were teasing me on the forum saying, you're not going to get big muscles. You know? No, no, that's not going to work. Lifting through the tears, you know? <laughs> But no, I like that old Duran Duran, Block uh, okay. of Seagulls, Tears for Fears stuff. You know, right, sure, stuff that sure. I remembered on Top Forty Radio when I was, right. you know, a youngin. So, all the right, well,
0: that that's yeah. awesome. So so now that people. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mark this timestamp stamp, uh, 42 minutes and 45 seconds, now we're making the transition into some more uh, of the theological and right. apologetic transition. Um, so here my, my question then is, um, wh- how does physical health relate to an intellectual healthy life and a, a, a spiritual life? If we could apply the intellectual aspect in regards to studying theology, studying apologetics, how does the physical health relate to, you know, those aspects of our lives?
1: Okay, well, first I have to give an apologetic uh, defense to all of the First Timothy four eight is the ha ha joke. Oh, my life versus physical exercise profiteth little. You always get the King James version, right? Right. Uh, and, and so there's like, yeah, I don't, I don't need the mess with all that or whatever. Well, Paul is
0: probably fat. That's why he wrote it.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> no, but usually the Baptist preacher quoting that to me is fat. Yeah, you know? right. I don't, not too many people were fat in the ancient world, man. Uh, that's true. Uh, but if you look at that verse, the first thing you notice is that the Bible says physical exercise profits. Yes. Right? Yes. Don't you want something that the Bible says profits? Secondly, it says next to godliness... Which is glorious to the promise of the present life and the life to come, right? There's, there's a comparison of something that's only pertaining to this life and then godliness, which pertains to both now and to come. Mm-hmm. And so it's not saying that physical exercise is garbage, which is what some people want to hear. And, like, right. godliness is all that matters because that's not what that verse says. Right. You know, Paul's also using in that same passage metaphors of being nourished on the word and things like that. You know, he's using all kinds of metaphors. If he had said, eating a triple cheeseburger profiteth little, you know, but physical exercise is great, you know, uh, then, you, yeah, it's it's a matter of context. What is he talking about? And he's comparison. he's comparing... Physical exercise, which he acknowledges is profitable, just says profits little by comparison to godliness. Right. Uh, but I think that that's still interesting. So anyone who tries to use that verse to get out of it, no. That's, the Bible is not poo-pooing physical exercise by any means. In right. fact, the Bible says it profits. Maybe yes. little little comparison to godliness, but that's still profit. And right. you should take what the Bible prof- says for profitable. Now, yeah. um, as far as helping with godliness— you understand that uh, probably a lot of people is not going to make sense, but you know, this research and study is a form of worship. If you love the Lord, right. And study and encountering the more brilliant minds of the faith, you know, that, that have lived through that. And they've, they've walked with God and, and wrestled with scripture. And they've, they've had life experiences of being spirit filled believers. Right. And reading, Scholarship, reading devotional material put together by people, um, reading you know the spiritual classics, all those kinds of things, more study, uh, reading the Word itself. We none of us believe that you should just read the Bible and nothing else. Right. So when you, but when you read all of this this material as part of your vocation or your your ministry or whatever, you're reading more than just the Bible. Sure, but you do believe that. To want to come to know more about the Lord you serve and want to understand his word better, you've got to read scholars to understand hermeneutics and, and you know, exegetical methods and things like that. So all of this stuff that we that we read informs our spiritual life and that leads us to it inspires us to engage in spiritual disciplines such as Bible study. Right. Mm-hmm. Such as praying Disciplines like memorizing scripture and all of these different things that we could. Some people are, you know, um, weird about the word meditation. But uh, if that word bothers you, reflecting upon, you know, Shh. meditating on the Psalms, you know, meditating on the law like David did day and night, you know, right, just, right, right. just think filling your thought because there is a principle of what you put in your mind is what's going to come out of your mouth. You know, sure. Um, sure. and so when you when you when you feel better. Like I feel better. I don't feel fatigued and sick all sick all the time like I used to. Mm-hmm. Sick to my stomach from overeating. Uh, sick from my heart feeling sagging because I'm not being heart healthy. Whatever. Sure. Winded from doing incredible feats like standing up. You know, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't have those issues anymore. I notice that when you when you feel better about yourself, um, you're 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 more mentally you're not focused on your hurts your you know and aches and your lack of self-confidence and just everything you know we think about what we look like more than anyone in any time of history because mirrors are so prevalent people don't realize that not everyone had a mirror you know sometimes they had bronze that they tried to you know have you ever tried to look at bronze to see yourself you
0: know it doesn't look good
1: (laughs) right uh, we have more mirrors and uh, you know, a lot of people in the church are probably miserable just from looking at themselves. <laughs> and, but that weighs on us. Right. It, it really does. People think that it's, 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 oh, I don't have these kind of clothes or I don't have the same car. No, it's deeper than that. It's you live with yourself and you have to see yourself reflected everywhere. Right. And a lot of people don't like the way that they look. But when you're not thinking about yourself in negative ways... And you're not thinking about your aches and pains in negative ways when you're f- physically healthy. Your mind is attentive and more alert to everything that you want it to be alert towards. Mm-hmm. So I'm not I'm not fatigued when I'm reading anymore. You know how you can just read, and if you're full bellied and you're laying up on the sofa, he's not off a little bit, and you're not getting as much done. And you I've noticed that my acuteness has dramatically increased. Mm-hmm. I have more time now uh, because of the lifestyle change where you just decide, you know, if it takes me a little bit longer to get through season eight of whatever show I was watching, so be it. You know, you start to relax about those kind of things. Or if I don't read this 1,600-page reference book, you know, if it takes a little bit of time, that's okay. Right. So, you know, I I, I, I have seen a dramatic improvement in my ability to read, study, comprehend, be sharp. Um, I spend more time in prayer. And that's one thing that I will say about exercise. If you are a believing Christian and you are out of shape, you will cry out to God more than you ever have. <laughs> when you're <in> the gym. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and, and if you take your faith seriously, which I do, I pray before every workout. Uh, I'm not saying I pray before every rep. I'm not trying to be sanctimonious, but, I think that the Lord is a part of these kinds of lifestyle changes. And when you yes. do all things to the glory of God, like Paul tells us to in Colossians, you just incorporate all of that more. And you're more aware of it, especially when you go through a life change, like I went through a life change and everyone can see it as far as my outward appearance. Mm-hmm. But also, if you, when you've been a longtime viewer of, of uh, Trinity radio, I've also gotten nicer as I've lost weight. And Braxton's gotten <laughs> more snarky. <laughs> <laughs> as on. Um, He's just not happy with himself. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, um, like I said, it has a lot to do with um, you think about yourself more often than you realize. Sure, sure. You know. Yeah. And
0: now, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: And and that's uh, part of our sinfulness is that we're not Christ-oriented and we're more self-oriented. But but uh, one day we'll be rid of that. But I do see myself having feeling better. I, 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 my prayer is more meaningful because I know that God took me through this. And I know that our atheist friends will say, well, I know people who lose weight all the time and they're not, you know, and I know people who make drastic lifestyle improvements and they don't, they don't believe in this stuff. Yeah. But see, number one, they're just wrong. But number two, when you (laughs) make, when you put God as forefront of your life, everything you become, you know, spending more time with your wife will bring you closer to your wife. Mm -hmm. Spending more time with anybody will bring you closer to them as a friend. You know, spending more time with God brings you closer to God. And you find so many ways when you unglue from the lifestyle of being sedentary, uh, of of being uh, mindlessly in front of a screen, whether it's on social. And my social media time has been cut in half, too. I realize Mm -hmm. I waste so much time on social media engaging in conversations that if four people are still reading... 120 comments deep then they're as fat as I am and they need to stop because (laughs) what we're saying to each other that no one in the world cares about is not that important and so you know that I've gotten away from all of that meaningless social media interaction I've gotten away from your your voice is not changing the world don't don't think it is uh stop it You know, and chances are, if you're that far into it, you're just trying to save face at some point and and Mm -hmm. keep from saying something too ugly. So just stop it. What I think
0: what I think. um, Healthy living kind of plays itself out in the same way. And I'm using like a loose example as fasting does. When you avoid food and rely on the Lord, there is a creation of conflict within yourself in that whole testing of fasting that, that, I'm sorry, that that causes you to call out to God. And when you're working out and it's difficult, you're almost training yourself. If you're a Christian and you're thinking about this intentionally, you're, in, you're training yourself by putting yourself in an uncomfortable position to all the more rely on the Lord. So there's almost like a, a spiritual aspect to the physical aspect um, that for godly-minded people who want to think biblically and grow in their relationship with God, they make these connections and they use these difficult you know challenges like getting healthy and things like that as m- just another opportunity to train yourself to rely on God.
1: Right. And well and and like I said a lifestyle change is not just about my diet and exercise. Sure. Uh I grew up in a wonderful Christian home. My dad was probably the godliest man I've ever known. He was a Sunday school teacher, he was an interested layperson. You know, I I still have his John MacArthur commentaries and and stuff that after he passed his Wayne Grudem systematic. Th- I mean, you know, the things that, that interested laypersons would get into, you know, that's not something that I would use on a regular basis, but I keep it because it reminded me of my dad, you know, so, they were his books and, and the great books of the Western world set that, that, um, uh, you know, he bought and he was interested in, in, in reading and all that. So but that was it, but you know what we never did. We never had consistent Bible studies as a family. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm not knocking him for having not done that just wasn't part of our life. And I noticed that my wife and I, we wanted to have daily devotions, mm-hmm. but we've done it so inconsistently over the years. You know, we get excited. We're going to do it. And we do it for two weeks and then it becomes go oh, I'm just tired of long day at work. You know, we'll do it. tomorrow. Right. You know, um, but I will say that we've gotten more consistent um, and and all of those things as a family of eating together, of, of, of doing that nightly devotional, doing the weekly game night, you know, with with your, your kids, you know, doing those types of things. I become more consistent in my own personal devotional studies and devotional times. Yes, if you're no matter if you work at a seminary, you shouldn't just read heady academic stuff. You know, mm-hmm. a good daily devotional goes a long way. You know, you need that. Real level, real world practical stuff, sure. especially scholars, because they're, they're obnoxious people. But uh, But yeah, I've noticed that just everything that I needed to get in order happened along the way of disciplining myself, disciplining my body like a boxer, like Paul says, you know, all these other things fell into place as far as being consistent and disciplined. And I don't think that I would have that discipline had I not been disciplined about my eating habits and my exercise and activity level. I, I don't think because it all is like a perfect storm of everything become in my life becoming more ordered and disciplined. And I think it started with the weight loss, but it 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 carries over into the feeling better being more disciplined, being more consistent on a day-to-day basis of doing the same things, you get more consistent in everything. You get more consistent in your uh, daily Bible readings. You get more consistent in your family life, your family devotional. You get more consistent at showing up at church every Sunday. All these kinds of things become more and more consistent in your life. And I can't say that for, I'm sure that there are tons of people out there who have uh, weight problems that read their Bible every day and all that stuff. I'm not saying that that's going to, you know, but if you are a person that are not consistent uh, in your studies, in your spiritual disciplines, and all of that, getting physically di- disciplined will help you get spiritually and mentally disciplined. Yeah. And and no question, I'm able to retain and be more aware uh, because of my physical health. I'm not constantly reflecting on aches and pains and stuff and fatigue, too tired to read, too tired to keep going, whatever. I, I'm I'm aware that my mind a lot sharper too. There's something about fit mind with a fit body, mm. yeah. and I can Fair- say this as a former fatty. As you say. You know. <laughs> that's right. That's right.
0: Um, okay, so let's shift, let's shift over to this whole issue of the life of the mind. And I'm sure, as a professor, people would be interested in what your study life looks like. Not not necessarily – I mean, you have the benefit, I suppose, that because you're a professor, part of your job is that you're reading, that you're studying, and things like that. But what does your personal study look like? Um, you know, is it – is it a mixture of, of listening and reading? Uh, you know, do you learn through preparing lessons? You kind of like take what you're going to learn and say, like, how would I teach this? And you go through that process. What does your process look like in terms of your own personal study and doing it efficiently?
1: Okay, so I, I break my study down. We'll, we'll, we'll start with first, um, first we'll just talk about the Bible. Okay. And I, I try to stay consistent with two methods. Uh broad reading and targeted book, go through a book and and passage by passage. And I do a lot of that uh, because I spend most of my time doing research in the new Testament stuff. I try to do my daily Bible studies in the old Testament and you know, um, but whatever, whatever you want to get into. So I, I think that it's good to do both. And so I try to read long sections of scripture, um, and I think that you can either do that by audiobook. Remember, most people for most of human history did not own a Bible. Most no. Christians did not have a Bible in their house. Um, they had to go to public readings of it. So listening to it on your u version Bible app audio version, same thing. you're you're just joining the the brothers and sisters who've gone on before us, you know and and hearing God's word. Uh, Pick, and I think they got every translation available sure. as audio now. But that's a good way to get saturated in the bigger chunks of the Scripture. Um, I got, for Christmas, my wife got me one of those Reader's Bibles uh, without the chapters and verses, and that's real nice, too. Mm. Which, which they don't read those off when you're listening to it. So I always tell... You know, that's always good when you don't have those, like when the, you're listening to an audio Bible, they'll, they'll tell you when they introduce a new chapter, but they won't, you know, you're not distracted by verse sure. numbers or subject headings or anything like that.
0: That would be really annoying, wouldn't it? it be like verse three, verse yeah. four. <laughs> right. Be terrible.
1: Yeah. But that is a, I, I think people can get too lost in the trees and miss the forest, or they can get too caught up in the forest and miss the trees. That's why I do both. So I, I tell people, you know, there's I don't set a time. Like if I'm in the office and I have time to read, I'll read from my reader's Bible. But, you know, if I'm in the car commuting, that's when I try to listen to the audio Bible. And that's a great way to get large chunks, follow the arguments. Like if you're in a piss, pistol or something without, mm-hmm. without zeroing in on that proof text that you saw two people on the Internet haggling over. Get out of that. right, right. Uh, Now, that's how I try to get broad chunks in, and I try to do that daily. Now, I will be going through a book of the Bible, and so I'll probably be starting Nahum pretty soon. Okay. Um, And what I will do is I will try to— I'll probably listen to it first and try to find and and, and follow along uh, as I listen to find the natural breaks uh, in the passage, whether the subject headers get it right or wrong. And then what I'll do is I'll start studying those sections. I don't study verse by verse, but I do study, you know, a pericope by pericope. And I try to have at least three commentaries with me. And I know that people just aren't overflowing with funds for that. But, you know, if you have three Blu-ray discs, you can afford three commentaries, right? If you can, if you can
0: dodge a wrench, you can dodge a dodgeball. Right. <laughs> That's right.
1: So, so, and and the commentaries would be more useful. I try to get commentaries from a variety of traditions. Now, I have log-off software, so I have a gazillion commentaries, but I don't always use them for my daily study. I try to find um, uh, a patristic source. I try to find a Reformed source, and I try to find just a standard evangelical source. Um, And that way, because I always want to read outside of my tradition. And I'm always interested in the early church fathers and see how they engage with scripture, because um, even the Antiochus school—that's not the same thing as grammatical historical hermeneutics like we talk about today. I mean, they were they were doing something a little bit different with the text too. Uh, sure. It's not just those crazy Alexandrians, because you know what? They were there were fewer Alexandrian heretics than there were Antiochian heretics. You know, like like Marcion and those guys. <laughs> A lot of heresies from the Antiochus school, which is the precursor to radical historical. So don't knock those crazy Neoplatonists in their Bibles because you believe in the Trinity and everything else they came up with. So Uh, so I always like to look at what they were up to. Uh, But I try to I try to take section by section. I try to read uh, several commentaries. And then I'm not sure if you're familiar with the socio rhetorical method of uh, interpretation, but you start with the inner texture, which is just the text itself and the world that's created by the text that you're encountering. And then the next layer, you go to the intertexture, which is you're looking for texts that are embedded in that text. Uh, the obvious case being Old Testament references in the New sure. Testament. But there are also but uh, echoes of all kinds of texts, whether written or oral traditions from the ancient world, that somehow fit into those texts. So you, you find any sort of connections of, of intertextuality. Mm -hmm. And then the third level is you look at the sociocultural dimensions of the text and and what were the thought categories? What were the the uh, structures of the families? What were the structures of the city? What were the politics like? What was what was the ideological? I mean, the sociocultural setting, not just historical setting, but deeper, not not what happened at this time in the world when this text was written? But how did they think? How did they engage? What were their social structures like? What was their cultural milieu like? Mm. And so you look at those kind of dimensions. And then you look at the ideology, the the ideological texture. And that's the texture of what what is the author? What is the intended audience? What are their ideologies? What are they trying to communicate through these texts? And then you take that, best you can reconstruct it, And you think about your own ideological views so i'm a non-reformed kind of just basic orthodox protestant you know um what does this have to say that's in common with my ideology what is my political you know how does this challenge that if it it needs to be challenged so you explore that ideological texture between the author audience and you as the interpreter and then the next texture would be the sacred texture, which is what most people think of when they read a commentary. What does this say about God? What does this say about God's relationship to creation? What does this say about God's relationship to believers? What does this say about um, your duties as a believer in Yahweh, as a believer in Christ? you know, What does this say to me theologically? The sacred texture was, is just another way of saying your theological reading of the text. What does this have to do with theology, doctrine, and things like that? Mm, yeah. And then the final texture in the model that we use at Trinity, which I use in my daily study, would be the homiletical texture. Okay, what is the exhortation from this passage? If I had to go, even if you're not a pastor, if I had to go teach or preach this to others— what is the exhortation from this passage? You know, and that's where you kind of cross those what they would call the hermeneutical bridge or whatever from mm. from text to application today. And so, what's the exhortation of this text to me to go and do, or to teach, or to, how am I supposed to think, or what am I supposed to believe properly from this text? And so, those six layers is how I go through and break each pericope by pericope. And theoretically, uh, I'm a I'm not a systematic theologian, but I love systematic theology, and I, I think that the bible is internally consistent you know it's inerrant and uh, sure. so it's not going to conflict so as you go through that you can find if you take notes like i do if you're a note taker and you and you and and you weighed in what the commentators have to say you know you've taken all that into account you should have a consistent reading you, but you can check your own notes and see how well my i think i spun that because of my tradition or whatever so right. maybe I need to rethink this passage or maybe I got this passage wrong because you want your stuff to harmonize like all of our traditions, whether we agree with your reform, you know, Calvinism or not or whatever. I think it. I think a, most all of them are more internally consistent than their opponents will give them credit for. Mm. <laughs> I'll just say that. Uh, I know that a lot of your uh, non-Calvinist friends think that, well, the logical conclusion of this is X, and you're not consistent with this passage, and this, the, your reading here doesn't match what this verse plainly right. says, and right, right, John right. 3.16, how can you be a Calvin? You know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> but I think most systems are as internally consistent uh, more than other people give them credit for. Sure. But it, it's finding, be that as it may, broad traditions are always nuanced and uh, Re- Reformed tradition is broad, right? Mm. Uh, Reformed Baptist is nothing like uh, Presbyterian in very important ways when it comes to sacramental life, you know? Sure, sure. Uh, so there's nuances everywhere. So what you got to do is you got to accept the fact that, okay, if you're in the Reformed tradition, for example, we still have our own spectrums. And you can find, at least if you if you work on it, uh through your own studies you can find inconsistencies in your own thought that maybe somebody else doesn't you know has a better take on it that's why you should, that's why I am a believer in commentaries to check yourself against other people who know more than you do sure you know? yeah um but you can but or you can find inconsistencies in your own thought because if you're comparing your notes from one passage to another you you think that the Bible's internally consistent. So why am I not being consistent in the things that I wrote down? Mm -hmm. Because if you're always thinking systematically while you're doing Bible study and, and you're, and you're making notes, then you're going to fudge your notes, but it's going back and looking at your notes and say, Oh, I think I misunderstood this because these aren't matching. Now, if you don't believe in inerrancy and you don't believe in the internal consistency, um, of scripture, that's not going to matter, but we're all Bible believers here. So, right. you know, even if you're, yeah,
0: <laughs> I like that's the I pause. Say. I like yeah. the pause just to make sure that's what I believe. You, yeah. you believe in inerrancy, right? <laughs> that's right. I do
1: believe in inerrancy. Yeah. Yes, I know you do. <laughs> but, saying, but for Bi- for Bible believing Christians who take the Bible seriously, that's right. Even if your theology turns out, you get to heaven, you find out you're wrong. Whatever. Okay, but the best thing that this method does of unpacking texts at six different layers and taking notes without. You know, and you're never going to get rid of all of your blinders. You're never going to get rid of all of your presuppositions. You're never going to get rid of your right. theological commitments. But what you can find is that you're not perfect. And what you will find is you will find at least your own inconsistencies. Say sure. now, if I said the Bible was teaching this back in uh, chapter two, how am I coming to this conclusion when that seems at odds with what I thought this said? So it's not checking. You, know, I don't do this to check myself against Calvinism or Arminianism or whatever. <clears throat> I do this to check. Am I internally consistent? And right. that's how you grow. As when you find out that, you need to go get some more help, you know, sure. when you find your own inadequacy. And so that's when I get into the deep pericope by pericope. And, and really, that takes probably me 30 minutes a day. Okay. To do yeah, my I, own Bible study.
0: That's a, that's a good way to kind of come at the text at a, uh, to get really the most out of the text as possible.
1: You kind yeah. of go through those
0: layers. And I think that's, that's a good way of, of going about it. Um, now, my last question uh, is we want to make this somewhat manageable for people because um, we don't want to get it too long. Um, by the way, I'm enjoying this conversation very much. I think yeah. it's very helpful for, for myself as well as I'm sure um, listeners will find it helpful as well. Um, but um, you, you mentioned taking notes. Um, how do you take notes? Uh, is there a special way you do it? Is there a way that you do it that you might think would be helpful for someone who might not know how to take notes? I mean – uh, how does that process work for
1: you? I'm spoiled. I work at a desk, and so uh, I can do mine here at work, maybe on my lunch break or wherever I can and get it in. So I take notes on the computer on Microsoft okay. Word. Um, I can't read my own handwriting though; That's it's a... that bad. So, so I, I don't. But my note taking is sometimes I uh, I do it on. I'll take my notes and make PowerPoints out of them. So okay. maybe I should just do it as PowerPoint, but. Uh, i I'm a note taker so i'll i'll make i'll i'll come up with the pass, now i learned this uh this method um of note taking from <coughs> clay jones who's a he who was one of my professors at biola because what what he would do is he would go to like uh bible gateway or whatever and he'd pick his translation and they have a bunch of translations okay. but they have a little gear where you can unclick like headings and footnotes and and Verse numbers and all that. If you click the, and he would unclick everything to where he just had the text, and he'd copy and text the the stuff to uh, a Word document, and then he would make his notes under that text. Now I don't put the text on my Word document. Uh, I did when I first learned his thing, but now that I do my own uh, her, uh, exegetical method, you know, the socio-rhetorical uh, approach, um, I'll I'll do the subject headers of the six different textures of the text, and I'll make my notes in each one of them. Uh, So I do all of that on Microsoft Word documents. Mm. And then, like I tell my students, uh, so I have students, and so, say in a class, I'm teaching a class on the general epistles, and I'm going through, like, the opening of uh, Jude, or I'm going through James. Um, Okay. I'll tell people, for those who are in ministry uh, and seminary, you don't know what... Well, you're taking a class on the general epistle, so this should be your your sermon series, Book of no James. Bad. Go for it, you know. And that way, you can turn your seminary work into sermon prep as well, and mm. get two for one. So, yeah. So that's just one of the. I, I think that
0: that's that's very helpful what you ju- what you just said because I remember um, someone was interviewing uh, Dr. William Lane Craig, and um, they were asking, you know, hey, how do you how do you kind of turn out all these different books? Uh, you know, seems like you're always writing and publishing something. And he mentioned just that. It's kind of you double dip, you know. Yeah. You take, he takes his scholarly work and then he from from working within that framework, he'll pull out something and turn it into a popular level book. There's no need. Uh, and I think this is, this is helpful for people. There's no need to reinvent the wheel every time. Um, right. You, you know, just building off what you've already done. Um, or even using someone else's outline as kind of a framework to kind of go off on your own and, and draw from that. I think that's very, very helpful. Yeah.
1: And it's important to remember that your favorite scholar, like one of my favorite biblical scholars is Craig Keener. Okay. Okay. And people say, well, it seems like him and Ben Witherington and N.T. Wright come out with a book every week, you know. Right. And if you look at in the Reformed tradition, uh, Vern Poitras and John Frame have tons of co-authored books. Like, how do sure. they do that? Right. And I'm like... Well, number one, they spent a whole lot of time in their younger years studying. And number two, they're older now and they yes. are paying dividends of all that knowledge that they built up. I can remember That's 25 it. years ago, these guys had very few books. But as they've gotten older and as they've digested so much information, now their, their output of books is a lot more than it was 25 years ago. Uh, so it's OK. You don't have to be 32 and have seven scholarly books out there for all right. you seminarians and and budding scholars that's not it's okay to allow god to let you live as long as you live and to take your time with things you know that's, you right. Do,
0: that's right
1: you don't you're not competing with those trust me you're not john frame you're not gonna be john frame <laughs> quit trying to be john frame maybe <laughs> stop you setting be, your
0: st- stop setting your standards so high come right. on right
1: <laughs> now if you're 63 and you haven't written your book yet then yeah get on the ball but yeah that's All right
0: um well uh, there was another interview that that uh, a while back that nt Wright, someone was interviewing nt Wright, and someone asked him that very question how, how do you put out so many books he goes well I've done so much reading in my younger years. I figured by now I might just write a good bit of it down. <laughs>
1: that's
0: yeah. Basically, That's basically how, how it right. goes. You know?
1: Well, That's we how they see, all do it. Yeah. We don't
0: see what happens behind the closed doors. We just see, right. hey, there's a guy, he's got an article, now he's published a book, and it's really awesome. We don't see all of the, the, the years and sweat and blood and tears that goes into uh, really gathering your thoughts, the information, really processing, and then just kind of Spinning it out in a way that's helpful for other people. We don't see those behind the scenes sort of things,
1: right? And that's one of the things that that, as far as apologetics goes, uh, three things that I think for apologetics, as far as apologetic fitness, and in, in addition to your own personal study yeah. habits and stuff, um, apologists need to study the Bible. They don't need to study every single popular apologist book that comes out. Right. I mean, because you talk about William Lane Craig's Reasonable Faith, how many different uh, apologists have their reasonable faith signature book that has the same evidential arguments that his does. You know, right. just, And I see these guys who are interested in apologetics, they will go from one apologetic book to the next, to the next, to the next, that are all covering basically the same information. Right. Get out of that. I don't care what kind of apologist you are. Whatever, don't just read apologetics books. That's a train wreck. Because right. um, na- now you eventually just become a parrot.
0: Yes. I I, I, well, I think that's, a, a, that's very relevant to um, a lot of presuppositionalists that I know I, is that a lot of presuppositionalists like to talk about the worldview stuff because yeah. they usually have access they, – they usually gain access to uh, – their point of contact is, say, someone like Bonson or a debate or something. And they'll talk a lot about this worldview stuff, but they've never actually studied the specific evidences and specific intricacies – when you actually dip your head into the details of that worldview. And so right. that's why you have a lot of presuppositionalists who not only do they not want to talk about the evidence because of the framework that sometimes they're operating in, they lack the capacity to do so. And they have never read Kant. That's yeah. uh, right. So 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 the, there needs to be a balance of that broader kind of study and that more specific, you know, knowing what the overall story of scripture is, but but knowing how to respond to someone who uh, brings an objection to your faith out of the, Levit- the Levitical law or something like that. You yeah. need to be able to to, get, to have that in in the details, in the weeds perspective, as well as that broader kind of
1: right. big picture More perspective. More people are going to ask any apologist of any kind of method about the Canaanite uh, genocide, so-called, right. and slavery in the Bible uh, than they are going to argue over— uh, objective foundations for morality or you know right. Right. the the person on the street that's uh, a non-believer maybe somewhat antagonistic you're gonna get questions like as basic as why is it just for someone else to be punished for my sins that's right. i mean we're, we're talking about substitutionary atonement that's basic theology but apologists not very biblically literate you know oh. um Right. Uh, Raxon even made a video where he said that one of his biggest convictions was that he'd been doing it all wrong because he just read apologetics and didn't really st- study doctrine and uh, scripture much right. uh, in, in his early days. And that happens to a lot of people that get into apologetics because they want to debate and they want, which is the worst reason to get into apologetics. You get into apologetics to evangelize, but mm-hmm. you know people want to debate and they want to, you know, all this stuff. And so you see people kind of like what you were talking about, like the getting down in the nitty gritty. You see a lot of people in classical apologetics. They'll say, well, the guth valinkton model in physics blows out the, the the idea of a infinite, you know, unit regression of time. Mm-hmm. Have you ever read their paper? No, you heard William Lane Craig say that. Yes. You know, and <laughs> Frank right. Kirk, and all the other guys who've repeated William Lane Craig's line. That's right.
0: Now, if you've read the paper, like that's all the more power to you. But the average popularizer, they don't go into those details. And we no. become, as you said before, we become parrots.
1: Yeah, cool. I want to say, uh, yeah, if you've read the paper, you're talking about less than 20 people in the entire YouTube apologetics <laughs> world that has Or if you understood the paper, that's a different thing. You but, can uh, the paper, that's, yeah, I, the I, I don't understand that paper. <laughs> yeah, and, a, nope. and, a, and apparently they've moved on from it anyway. So, right, right. you know, I'm just saying I don't understand physics. I don't pretend to. Uh, so, I'm not saying stuff like that personally. Right, right. But right, most right. people don't care. People think, that, people think that atheism is the big thing uh, in apologetics. Like, that's less than 4%. Of, if you're interested in evangelism, what I call just a chaotic paganism or spirituality, that's most lost people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're not atheists. Yeah. You know, one thing that apologists, you know, if you want to be a fit apologist and you get, read evangelism books and go learn how to do that, then do it, and realize that arguments against atheism—that's you're not—you're going to be lucky if you one in a hundred people you witnessed to is going to be an atheist. Yeah, yeah, you know, you, nominal that- nominal Christians and. I'm spiritual, not religious people is who you're going to talk to. And that's a
0: a whole different animal that sometimes more difficult to talk to someone like that than talking to an atheist.
1: Yes. Because it's irrational. You want to talk about no foundations or consistencies or what? Oh yeah. And they don't care. There there is that when you just said, because it's
0: irrational, that's very, that's very, um, funny because I, I spoke with someone who who knew Dr. Gordon Clark. Now, if those of you who know who uh, Gordon Clark is, he's, uh, a specific brand of presuppositionalism, but many people know him as a brilliant logician. I mean, this guy was uh, an iron trap mind um, in a lot of of regards. And he used to invite his students over his house to play chess. And of course, playing chess against Dr. Clark was nearly, you're gonna get crushed because he's just such a logician. And so one of the students lasted the longest with Dr. Clark. And, um, and he was surprised, Dr. Clark was surprised. And, and, and everyone asked the guy, eventually he lost, but um, everyone asked him, how did you last so long against Dr. Clark? And he goes, well, I was just making random irrational moves. And yeah. and 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 when I would make a move, Dr. Clark w- would think, why would you make that move? And there was no reason. It was the irrationality of it yes. all that threw off his rational mind. And I think the same thing when we're speaking with nominal Christians, the irrationality of it makes it very difficult to reason with those sorts of people. And so that's a whole nother apologetical task that I think is underdeveloped in a lot of the books out there and the way we do apologetics.
1: Yes. So when you ask someone who doesn't believe in a monotheist God... Why there are souls and spells work, <laughs> and you tell them, but don't you see your worldview can't account for that? There's no foundation of a omnipotent being that can bring those kinds of things. I don't care. Yeah, <laughs> this is what I believe. This is just my belief. You have that's your belief. A, How does your apologetic stand to that? What do right. you say at that? Point? So you know. No,
0: this this, this is this no. is that that's actually an. I, that's probably worthy of a different podcast episode, how to talk to people like that. That, that would be a very interesting, yes. And that's just uh, a if, discussion. If
1: you, we'll see the reason why people, people don't know how to respond to that is because they don't do evangelism. That's
0: right. <laughs> that's right. Because that's, that's the average person you'll see you'll, you'll that's the average person you'll talk to and you're if you're not encountering them, you're probably not sharing your faith on a normal basis.
1: Right. And for me, you like like I, we discussed at the opening, I don't have a I use presuppositional methodology when it's useful. Mm-hmm. You have given evidences when it's useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've seen you give evidences for the resurrection and for the beginning of the universe and all of that. Mm-hmm. Good apologists will use evidence the best that they can use out of all of these methodologies, right? And so that's why I don't get apologists who debate methods. I'm like, is it a fact? Because Braxton makes this argument uh, that I think is right. So even if you're a Calvinist and you you think that now Calvinists will have their own debates, whether presuppositional or classical is the proper reform method, right? I've okay. seen those debates. Presbyterians and Baptists sure. argue about that. sure. Okay, but even if you're reform, for your reformer, if you believe that God uses means as well as the ends, and that God can use means to convert the sinner, you know, regeneration preceding faith on, on in that tradition, evidences can be the means that God uses. So you sure. if, you don't have to be against evidences. Sure. So so. More is better, in my opinion, when it comes to apologetics methods. When it comes to evangelistic methods, more is better. There's no one-size-fits-all for anybody. Mm. But I think apologists need to become the evangelists of of the 21st century. Number one, because no one else is doing it, so we have to give an apologetic to the church about why they should do evangelism, because just the pastor... He says, we need more evangelism, but even he himself isn't doing it. (laughs) You know, it's one thing to say, we need more evangelism. Start doing evangelism and do it, number one, by setting the example, by actually doing it. That's the apologetic task. Right. Right. And when you do that, you're going to figure out really quickly that different, especially in personal evangelism, different conversations with different lost people are going to require a wider set of tools. Mm. And so apologetic fitness is... It's one thing to have, inter- I have internal critiques of various methods. Some things are good about cumulative case, some not. Some things are good about precepts, some not. Some are good about classical, some not, or whatever. But there's good in all of it. And there, you're going to talk to someone where you're going to wish that you had a bigger toolkit. Mm-hmm. And so if I can encourage, Paul, just have a bigger toolkit. Don't be so method minded that you're 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 evangelistically weak is Mm -hmm. you know
0: see now now as a presuppositionalist um and we don't have to get into our disagreements here but um i think the presuppositional method is a big enough toolkit what i disagree with is the way that people limit the toolkit they think the toolkit is not allowed to use certain tools and so they'll only use one tool in the toolbox um and so in that sense i think um uh, I had a great discussion with uh, Chris Bult, um, who is um, a presuppositionalist in the previous episode on, on my podcast. And and he was talking about the presuppositional use of natural theology, the presuppositional use of a cosmological. Sure. Argument.
1: They're, well, they're Scott, often not... the same way. He says, I'm an evidentialist in, in one respect. Yeah. Yeah. But but well, make that famous, because I don't think a lot of presuppositionalists <laughs> know that. No, that,
0: that, that's true. That's what I'm saying. I, I think we. We limit ourselves when we're just relegating ourselves to one way of arguing. You could yeah. be presuppositionalist and argue in different ways. Um, Greg Bonson did this in his debate with Gordon Stein. What did he yeah. focus on? He focused on the issue of logic as, as um, uh, a- an aspect of human experience that can only be held up by the Christian worldview. In his debate yeah. with um, Edward Tabash, he shifted the focus onto the issue of induction. Those were two different emphases within a presuppositional framework sure. I think a lot of popularizers just have one argument they have only their certain catchphrases that they learn and that's it and if you veer from that you're you're, you know, you're letting man be the judge and all this garbage of.
1: Ugh. Yeah, see, I, I like to, yeah, I like to say. To, Braxton always says, "Why don't you just call yourself a presuppositionalist?" Because he says that's ultimately what I am. I say, "Well, number one, the reform guys will throw fit if I do. Yeah, uh, <laughs> they but, probably will. <laughs> yeah, but number two is well, it's because I, I think there's a lot more crossover than than people give credit for. That's why they need to read. Um, but. Uh, And people, if they want to have those, people can debate whatever they want to debate, you know, as long as it's friendly. Um, But I think for the evangelistic task, you should never limit your toolkit, like you said, no matter what your primary method is. And as for discipleship, which I think apologetics plays a role in discipleship, uh, even if you're an adamant pre-supper who does not like evidence or reformed epistemology, you know, you go that route where, well, I mean, they have warrant without evidence, you know. Okay, whatever. Did you know, again, back to the means thing, did you know that in discipleship, those who are in the church, those evidences go a long way to help anchor their faith? Sure. You know, so the Kalam and the arguments, for the defense of the resurrection and all that stuff, uh, church folks like that kind of thing because it makes them more confident in the reasonableness of Christianity. Sure. Um, so you, you you still need to know it for discipleship purposes. You know, all of it's useful in some way. Yeah. Uh, so I think one way to be apologetically fit is to be, number one, well-read, be well-read and grounded in Scripture, and well-read in the best of all the traditions. So even if you're going to debate it, you at least know what you're talking about. That's right. You know? Yep.
0: There's a, um, I'm just going to close with this comment here. Um, there's a really cool little book called—and um, maybe my Calvinist friends would— would, would appreciate this. There's a book out there, a small book, called Killing Calvinism. And one of the, and it's written by a Calvinist, and one of the um, chapters um, talks about how many Calvinists, especially like the cage stager sorts, can only find themselves reading reformed literature. And they actually kill the strength of their own position when they do not avail themselves of the strength of other positions. And I think that's very, very important in not closing ourselves in within our tradition and not actually seeing the value in other things. Presuppositionalists sometimes are guilty of doing this. Calvinists are guilty of doing this. You know, I'm sorry, they're traditionalists who do this where they kind of keep themselves. We need to get yeah. out of that. We need to get out of that mindset. You can read people that you disagree with and still learn. And it's not the same as compromising.
1: That's and, the key. That's the key. I was, before you finish your thought, I want to add this and still sure. learn. It is it is the mark of a clown mm-hmm. who reads first to cr- criticize if they bother to read outside of their tradition at all. It's to tear it apart. Say that again. Uh, Can
0: you say that more clearly? Because what you what you said is very important.
1: I said it is the mark of a clown, somebody that you should not take seriously. If if they bother to read out of their side of their tradition at all, don't care what tradition. Traditionalists who never read a Calvin, oh, the whatever. I don't care who. If they if they only bother to read outside of their tradition just to criticize, that's right. Th- they're a clown. You need to read to learn first. And I read to learn atheists first, so that because like you said, even if you're in the debate, you want a steel man, not straw man. You want to take them on at their their strongest. But beyond that, you gain information of psychology. Why did they come to that conclusion? Sure. And you could test your own blind spots as well. That's why I Go back to the Bible study. Why do I pick something from the Reformed tradition? Because I know I'm not that, and I need to check against what they're saying. And, oh, by the way, they say a ton of things that I think are better said in that book than in my own guy's book. Sure. In my own guy's commentary. Because, I mean, it's not like everything's just opposites. So uh, there's wisdom and knowledge to be gained outside of your tradition. Uh, But I think the best thing to do is read widely read outside of your own tradition, and first to read to learn. Yes, you can engage it and you engage in critical readings of the text and stuff, but that should not be your focus when you're reading. You should be reading to learn, and then once you understand, critically engage it at that level. But if you're just reading something to rip apart, you're wasting your time because That's right. you go against the guy who wrote that book, and he'll tear you to pieces because you did not closely read his book. You just wanted to argue with it.
0: That's right. Or you could pull a Dan Barker and say, don't quote my book.
1: <laughs> yeah. <I've> never seen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, listen, uh, Dr. Pritchett, uh, this has been an excellent discussion. And I think a lot of people are going to find this helpful on a whole host of levels since we covered so many different, uh, different yeah. things. I want to personally thank you. It has been, it, this is our first time actually meeting face to face and, um, it has, been a, it has been a true pleasure. Thank you so much for your Yes,
1: time. and I love what you're doing, man. Carry that torch for priests up. Keep Keep talking theology. I love it that you're interested in theology. You're interested in the ideas and the conversation more than you are tearing somebody down. And there are a lot of people, and especially the soteriology debate, that need to learn from your example on every side, man. So I appreciate what you're doing there. And I appreciate your heart for witnessing and evangelism and doing it all for the glory of God, man. That's well, why... I I'm a fan, been a fan, like to tease you, but I'm a fan.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. Well, just stay on with me. I'm just going to stop the recording here, and then I'll, we'll formally say our goodbyes, okay? All right. All right. That's all for this episode, guys. I hope you enjoyed. If you have any questions, you could email me at revealedapologetics at gmail.com. If there is a topic that you want me to cover, you can let me know uh, via email or on Facebook. Thank you very much for listening to the Revealed Apologetics podcast. Uh, If you have any questions um, that you would like me to cover in a podcast episode, uh, please email them to me to revealedapologetics at gmail.com. Also, we very much um, appreciate your prayers, and if you wish to support Revealed Apologetics financially, uh, you can by doing so. Um, We have a a PayPal account set up. Uh, You can... um, uh, Help us out financially um, at paypal.me slash revealedapologetics, paypal.me slash revealedapologetics. And that would be uh, greatly appreciated if if you were able to help out financially. If not, um, we we definitely would appreciate uh, prayer. Um, And um, once again, if if you have any questions uh, that you'd like me to cover, revealedapologetics at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and God bless. Thank you